Welcome, friends, to uh, another online broadcast from Trinity Church. These are videos that we're producing in this time of lockdown during the coronavirus. We're putting some of our teaching material uh, online. It's a very poor substitute for our Sundays together, our gathered worship. Uh, we can't put everything together like that. So here's here's an attempt to put out to our church family and to everybody else who may be watching. You're very, very welcome indeed to join us. Uh, for this broadcast today uh, from Trinity Church. I'm going to preach for us in just a moment from the book of Isaiah, uh, chapter 58. Our title for today is When God Hates Fasting. We're going to read um, a passage from the Bible and um, look at that together. Uh, before I do that, here is uh, a prayer uh, called The Broken Heart. It comes from a book of prayers that we've used quite often recently called The Valley of Vision. And I'm going to pray this for us. O Lord, no day of my life has passed that has not proved me guilty in thy sight. Prayers have been uttered from a prayerless heart. Praise has often been praiseless sound. My best services are filthy rags. Blessed Jesus, let me find a covering in thy appeasing wounds. Though my sins rise to heaven, thy merits soar above them. Though unrighteousness weighs me down to hell, thy righteousness exalts me to thy throne. All things in me call for my rejection. All things in thee plead my acceptance. I appeal from the throne of perfect justice to thy throne of boundless grace. Grant me to hear thy voice assuring me that by thy stripes I am healed, that thou wast bruised for my iniquities that thou hast been made sin for me, that I might be righteous in thee, that my grievous sins, my manifold sins, are all forgiven, buried in the ocean of thy concealing blood. I am guilty, but pardoned, lost, but saved, wandering, but found, sinning, but cleansed. Give me perpetual brokenheartedness, Keep me always clinging to thy cross. Flood me every moment with descending grace. Open to me the springs of divine knowledge, sparkling like crystal, flowing clear and unsullied through my wilderness of life. Amen. Isaiah chapter 58. Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the days of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose? 
to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday and the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong and you shall be like a watered garden like a spring of water whose waters do not fail and your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt and you shall raise up the foundations of many generations. Then you shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honourable, if you honour it not going your own ways, or seeking your own pleasure, or talking idly. Then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Amen. Two days of fasting and prayer, our first ever, for Trinity as a congregation, and we had them the first two Fridays in April. Here we are on the other side of those days of fasting and prayer. And so here is the question in front of us today. Why do something God hates? Why did our elders call our church family to two days of something that this chapter says can be an act of flagrant rebellion against God? Isn't it remarkable? Did you notice as as I was reading it, as we were looking at it, this is a trumpet blast chapter. You see that in verse one? Some passages in the Bible are flute chapters or clarinet chapters, Psalm 23, Psalm 46. But nearly always when it comes to religion, few things make God ask his prophets to turn up the temperature and to lift their voice. Few things make God raise the volume like religion. And because the decibels have increased in verse verse one, so too the intensity has increased. Look at the second half of the verse. Declare to my people their transgression and to the house of Jacob their sins. High volume, high stakes. This is God on the warpath about his people's behaviour. It is sinful and it is rebellious. So what are you expecting next in verse two? That's what... The chapter opens with, if that what that's what God says, to lift your voice like a trumpet, what must they be doing? People must be trampling all over the commandments, right? It, it must be Baal worship again, golden calves, sexual immorality. It must be flagrant, obvious, terrible sin to have this sort of start to a chapter, this sort of language. But it's not, is it? What do these people look like? Well, they look like well-dressed, respectable, thoroughly church-going Presbyterians. They look like evangelical Baptists, 
They look like lively charismatics. This is not a people running away from God, but a people who are constantly coming to God. This is religion that seems praiseworthy. Just look again at the language in verse 2. This is tireless religion. You notice they seek me daily. It was committed religion. They seek me. And it is devoted religion. Notice verse 2. They delight to do this. Oh, it looks so good and it sounds so good. They ask me for just decisions. They are praying and asking to come near me to come near to them. These folks probably attend the kind of church that you and I would like to visit. If you move somewhere new, you leave Aberdeen and move to a new church. It's probably the kind of church that would look good to you on a website. I'll, I'll check that place out. Might feel like home. So can you see how shocking verse one is? Declare to my people their transgression to the house of Jacob, their sins. Here are their sins. Tireless, committed, devoted religion. So, so, so what is wrong? How can this be wrong? Well, the devil is in the details, isn't it, as usual? Look again at verse two. Yet they seek me daily. Literally, verse two, the opening of verse two has the kind of sense of me they seek, really? And delight to know my ways. Ah, here it is. As if they were a nation that did righteousness. They delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right. Ah, what they seem is not what they are. They seem eager for God to come near to them, but God can see through our seeming. That's what this chapter is saying. God can see through our seeming. God can see what no one else can see because he hears what the people are really saying. Verse three, he hears what they're saying. Why have we fasted and you see it not, God? Why have we humbled ourselves, God, and you take no knowledge of it? He, friends, he, here already we begin to touch the heart of it. Here, here we are just beginning to lance the boil. Who was all of this religious activity for? Themselves. Isn't that what they're saying? We've done all of this for you, God. We fasted. We've spent all day long. Look, humbling ourselves today and you have not done for us the things we asked. They are depriving themselves of food in order to get something from God for themselves. They are not doing it because of delight in God himself or, or because of their own horror at their own sin. And their own deep desire to be new. They are doing it simply because of simple cause and effect. If I make the payment, God must deliver the goods. Religion is for God to make me happy. Religion is for twisting the divine arm, manipulating God, securing blessings from him that he would not want to give me otherwise. So clear, isn't it? Look how it works. Look at the second half of verse three. Ah, says God, yes, I, I can see what you've been doing at church. But I also see what you're like at the end of the day at home. Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. You fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. It, it's possible, isn't it, that that, that description in verse four it's possible that it's simply the effects of fasting most people are ready for a good quarrel 
and a bit of strife after a day of fasting. If you've done it, you'll know that. Go without food all day long and by five o'clock you are pretty grumpy. It, it tends to do that to you. The, the point here is that all of this outward religious activity and it is exposing what the heart is really like. Here's what God sees. These people were afflicting their bodies, but they were not afflicting their souls. That, that's the message of this chapter. Afflicting their bodies, but they were not afflicting their souls. You, you and I think, we think in compartmentalized ways. But God thinks in holistic ways. We think I'll give God this much. Friday morning, Friday lunchtime, Thursday night, Sunday morning, this piece of the week, this day. I'll give God this part of my money, this bit of my time, this bit of who I am. But the rest is mine. And when we do that, God says here in this chapter, we are just pleasing ourselves, not him. So look what happens. There's something I'd like you to do, says God. There, there is a kind of fasting that I'm interested in. There is a way of you going without that I do care about. Now, here is a strong but a beautiful challenge for all of us, friends. Here's the words of Ray Ortland, a pastor, a preacher, a commentator on Isaiah. He says this, when you look at verses six and seven, Okay, have that in front of you and look at it. When you look at verses six and seven, here's what God is saying. If our Christianity, however sincere and passionate, does not move us to make the world a better place, then it is not just unhelpful to others. It is unacceptable to God. Wow. If our religion, however sincere and passionate, our Christian faith does not move us to make the world a better place, it is not just unhelpful to others, it is unacceptable to God. He's right. That that gets this passage right. We must not lose the force of it. We, we see our sincerity and our passion in all our religious activity, but if my personal individual love for the Lord Jesus Christ does not make a difference to somebody else, it is a malignant tumour. Is not this the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? See, what the prophet Isaiah wants to do for us today is he wants us to get our verbs in order. Our, our, our verbs, our, our action words, our doing words, in order to honour God and love God and live for Christ, we need to have our verbs in order. So easy, isn't it, to live by religious verbs. Verse 2, seek is a religious verb. It's a religious thing to do. Delight is a religious verb. It's a, a Christian way to be. Ask, verse 2, is a religious verb. Surely God wants us to pray and to ask him things all the time. But look at the verbs God gives us to live by. Look at God's verbs, verse 6. Loose, undo, go free, break, share, provide, clothe. Into verse 7, do not turn away from your own flesh and blood. Such a challenge, isn't it? What are your verbs like? Seek, delight, ask, or loose, untie, set free, shelter, provide, feed, clothe. Such a challenge. We do religious action. 
But Isaiah says God does social action. That there is a way of being towards others that shows how you really are towards me, God says. Now, within our church family, a lot is different at the minute on lockdown, but just stop and think about it. Within our church family, this sort of thing, there are many avenues for this sort of thing within Trinity Life. Most of our regular giving is to the Cruden Trust that supports gospel work in all sorts of ways, gospel ministry, the work of the, the church family, mission at home and abroad. But we have other Christian charity that has been connected to us over the years. Within the church family, there is a strong emphasis on social well-being. We've supported the work of RSVP, the Leprosy Mission, Play for All, the, the Torch Trust, Shoebox Packing for Blythewood Care. We have, we have other ones, don't we, from time to time. Christians Against Poverty that we gave one of our Thanksgiving offerings to. But, uh, but I want us, as a, as, as a church family, if you're part of Trinity, as you, if you're watching this with me, think yourself into the thought flow of the passage. I want us to feel the point that it's making. If we read a passage like this together... Verse 6, is not this the kind of fast that I have chosen? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to let the oppressed go free, to share your bread with the hungry. If we think ourselves into a passage like this and think back to the things that we do as a church family. Well, look, I've given my money to Christians Against Poverty. There's my check. Box ticked, job done. If we think like that, isn't it true that there is actually every chance we are becoming in our giving, exactly like these people here who draw the Lord's fire. There's my social bit for God done. Now on with the rest of life. Back to normal religious business. When we do that, wouldn't God be saying, verse 5, to us, is this what I've asked for? Just a day? Only a day? One day, a Thanksgiving offering, a, a, a piece of giving here, an activity over there, and you're done? The grand gesture, the form of religious observance. Is that what you think I'm after? I remember uh, a while ago when I was working on a sermon. I wasn't working at home. I was working with uh, somewhere out where one of my children were at a sporting uh, activity. There was a guy sitting at a table in front of me near me with a computer. And he saw me with my computer and over he came. Can you help me? He asked, he said, I'm a pipe fitter, I'm an offshore worker, I'm out of work, I'm looking uh, to update my CV and I cannot find it on my memory stick. I'm, uh, I'm clueless at these sorts of things. Couldn't tell one end of a laptop from another. And he just kept asking me for help. Over, he come, I thought he'd be done, he'd come back a few moments later. And inside, I'm, can't you see I'm busy? Can't you see I'm working on a sermon? Can't you see I'm working on a sermon about how God wants us to help people in need? It's very hard, isn't it, to take the time to loose. I love those verbs in verse 6. To undo the straps, to let the oppressed go free. Friends, as a parent, I get frustrated trying to untie one other person's shoelaces. Never mind untying the cords of a yoke that might be pressing somebody down, the, the heavy bar that sees somebody weighted down with something. It is hard to take the time to give to others, isn't it? I want to encourage us as a church family. It is very possible together at different times in different ways, we will experience lockdown fatigue, coronavirus, 
exertion, exhaustion. Come back to God here freshly with this chapter and see the kind of activity that God loves. The kind of activity that shows spiritual life coursing through our veins. Look at verse 10. Never mind giving to others. What about spending yourself for others? So challenging, isn't it? Look, Lord, there's the check I've written. Do you see it? I I got it in early. I, I never miss a month. I get it in first day of the month. I give. But me personally, Lord, I'm full. I've got plenty. I'm intact. I'm protected. I'm not spent. One commentator says, here is God looking at people fasting, people people who are depriving themselves of food, but they are depriving themselves so that God will give them something. Yet God's own nature is to give himself away. It's beautiful, isn't it? It's right. God's own nature is to give himself away to people who cannot repay him and who will never repay him. And so God is saying, look, do you want to deprive yourself of something? You want to fast? Then do it for the sake of the needy and the helpless. That That's what makes me turn up, says God, and come close to you, for that is what shows we are on the same team. That is what shows you are a child of this heavenly father. Children grow up to be like their parents, don't they? Taking on their mannerisms, their customs, their habits. God gives himself away and spends. There's things, there's things out there that we need to work to do away with. Give what you can of yourself away. Give what you can of yourself to do away with injustice and what is not right out there in the world. There, there are things in here that we need to work to do away with. Verse 9, the, the, the pointing finger, the malicious talk allocating blame instead of taking responsibility, running other people down instead of building them up. See, one of the things that is happening in this chapter, Isaiah is saying, God wants to deliver me from me. He wants to deliver you from you. He wants to deliver us from a focus on ourselves, those blinders that we put around to to pull us up and out and away from ourselves and away from my needs and outwards to a long, careful look at the world. The long, careful look at you and your needs instead of mine. Listen again to Ray Ortland. I love this. The gospel of God's grace creates generous, hardworking, grateful, available people. You want God to answer your prayers? Go be the answer to someone else's prayers. You want God to be close to you, to hear you, to see you, to help you? Go get close to someone else. It is more blessed to give than to receive. There is a kind of counterintuitive spiritual health going on here in being delivered from yourself and being spent and poured out on others. Look at the images of light and healing that that flow from all of this. Verse 8, then shall your light break forth like the dawn. Your healing shall spring up speedily. Your healing when you spend yourself. Spend yourself on others and give away. And your own night will give way to light. That's what the text says, isn't it? The Lord will 
satisfy your needs. You're going to find that as you do this in the cracks and crevices of your heart, you, you will not wither and die because you've had to go without something. In, in fact, quite the opposite. You will find wellsprings of life, river, rivers of life and love and generosity welling up, gardens growing. I want to just take a moment to apply this to all the different groups of people who I think will be watching this video. If you know you're not at all religious and you're looking at the Christian faith and maybe wondering, looking at what's happening in the world, wondering what it's all about, here it is on display. Read the Gospels in the Bible, four biographies of the life of Jesus of Nazareth, a real historical man who lived and taught and died and Christians believe rose again. Read the Gospels where you will see the, the Lord Jesus himself say the same things as this man Isaiah. Jesus said anyone who loves their life will lose it. But anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. He doesn't mean we come to hate ourselves. Now, Jesus doesn't teach us to think less of ourselves. He teaches us to think of ourselves less. And to think of others more. I want to say to those of you who are watching, who are wealthy, rich people. We're all rich, aren't we, of course. But if God has blessed you with wealth and a larger than average income, you need to decide what kind of rich person you're going to be. Don't be like the rich man in the book of Ecclesiastes. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, workaholic. Yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. And you know what the teacher in Ecclesiastes says next? Two are better than one because they get a better return for their work. Two are better than one and three are better than two. Four better than three. Spend for yourself, on yourself, and you might end up with all your ducks in a row and have all the religious credentials in the world to be marvelled at. And as you do it, you find God lost interest in you years ago. Spend your wealth on others, friends. Use it to untie, to, to loose, to feed, to clothe, to shelter. Young folks who are watching, you, you need to decide now what kind of older person you're going to be. It's up to you how you define young, if you want, if you're watching. But certainly to our uh, our teenagers, to our youth group, our truth group watching, folks in their 20s and 30s, can I encourage you, decide now what kind of older person you're going to be. You know, you can do that. You can decide today what you will be like tomorrow. Se several years ago, I, I made a new friend, a man called James Russell Miller and it's a strange friendship it's a kind of virtual friendship because he's dead uh, he died a couple of hundred years ago but before he died this lovely old man wrote to the young people in his church and here's what he wrote to them in a, a pastoral letter how can we so live that our old age when it comes shall be beautiful and happy it will not do to adjourn this question until the evening shadows are upon us it will be too late to consider it Consciously or unconsciously, we are every day helping to settle the question whether our old age shall be sweet and peaceful or bitter and wretched. It is worth our while then to think a little how to make sure of a happy old age. 
We must live a useful life. Nothing good ever comes out of idleness or selfishness. The standing water stagnates and breeds death and decay. It is the running stream that keeps pure and sweet. The fruit of an idle life is never joy and peace. Years lived selfishly never become garden spots in the field of memory. Happiness comes out of self-denial for the good of others. Sweet always are the memories of good deeds done and sacrifices made. Their incense, like heavenly perfume, comes floating up from the fields of toil and fills old age with holy fragrance. When one has lived to bless others, when one has lived to bless others, one has many grateful, loving friends whose affection proves a wondrous source of joy when the days of feebleness come. Bread spent, cast upon waters, is found again after many days. Some people move into marriage and parenthood and middle life. And as they move into those stages of life, their self-denial for the good of others, in, in the kind of way that Isaiah describes, that their self-denial for the good of others grows like a garden. They become like fruitful oak trees spreading out their branches and many, many people come to shelter underneath them. They're fed by them and watered by them. And friends, it happens exactly the other way round as well. That some folks move through life slowly stagnating, not because there is no religious activity, but because their religious activity goes hand in hand with looking out for number one. Their top priority remains themselves. Here's the question, who do you know outside your own family that would say of you, that person loves me well. Well, after all this, as you look at Isaiah 58 again, I'm nearly finished. As you look at it again, doesn't it end in a surprising way? This really surprised me when I was looking at this. Here is a chapter, Isaiah 58, where God says to his people, do you think it's just one day that I want from you? That's what he's saying, isn't he? All the way through. You think I'm interested in you keeping one holy day? And then look what he says at the end of verse, says at the end, verse 13. You know what else I've got against you? That you don't keep one day honourable to me, the Sabbath. I, I, I hate that you think I only want one day special. I hate that you don't keep one day special. Which is it to be? What is God saying here? Sabbath keeping or non-Sabbath keeping? Does God care about us keeping certain holy days or not? Well, do you know what's going on here? The, the, uh, these fast days which the people were keeping were just that. Fast days. Days of going without something. And they thought it made God look kindly on them. But the Sabbath was not a fast day. It was a feast day. The Sabbath was a party day. It was a day of being together with God's people, feeding and loving him, worshipping him. So which is it that you think I want, God is saying? Fasting or feasting? Deprivation or delight? On the seventh day, God rested. God rested. And in Genesis chapter 2, that seventh day is the only one of the seven days that does not have morning and evening. No morning or evening on the seventh day. In other words, it does not have an end. It, it doesn't finish. 
God is the God who made a world to be enjoyed forever, savoured forever, and he wants his people to enter that rest. Sabbath is what I am all about, says God. You want to know who I am, what defines me, the, if you like, the, the essence of life with me, it is Sabbath. It's who I am, not, not fasting, not, not working, not striving, not straining, not running, not trying to succeed and get ahead. But resting, being with me. God gives us his people one day a week to show us that we were not created to be slaves to work. Or even slaves to our families, perhaps a greater danger for many of us. One day a week to show us that we do not provide for ourselves, but rather God provides for us. One day a week for us not to do as we please. You see that in verse 13? But rather for God to give us what pleases him. It's very important, I think, for us as Christ people to know that Sunday is not an extra Saturday. It's not a second Saturday. Saturday is my do as I please day. But Sunday is the Lord's day. It is resurrection day, a feast day. Sunday is pancakes in the morning day and being with God's people day and night, morning and evening. It is the best food and the best wine. And and do you see this? Do Do you feel the flow, feel the feeling of the passage in the way that all of this works? The Sabbath is a day of me second and others first. It is a day of worship and a a day of the right kind of self-humbling, God-exalting devotion that I want to characterise every single day of my life. I, I think in this season of time away from church, this is something for us individually and as families to reflect on, parents and children, if you're watching this together. While, while we cannot meet together on Sundays, maybe now is a good time to revisit your Sunday routines. Does your Sunday look like another Saturday? Maybe just with church thrown in in the morning. Are you doing on Sunday afternoon and evening exactly the same things you're doing through the week? By the afternoon and evening, Sunday looks just like any other day. It shouldn't do. You know, over the years, the the church families that I've known who are the most stressed and the most busy and the most chasing their tails never stop on Sundays. They're still running here, there and everywhere trying to keep their kids happy or their parents happy or their boss happy by working from home on a day when no one actually is making them work. And it, it all springs from a focus on me, on me, on, on my family, my needs, my jobs, not from Isaiah 50. It's focus on God and on others. No, we are in a time of famine, aren't we, from church family life. When we resume, will we treat Sundays like church family feast day? You know, at the minute, there's a lot of debate amongst pastors and theologians online about the fact that because we're not together, we're not able to take the Lord's Supper together. Should we be trying to find ways of doing it uh, virtually in all our homes or uh, all of this kind of debate is happening? I think the, the the most challenging, powerful thing that I have read about it is somebody has pointed out that the ultimate sanction of the end of fellowship in God's church is the removal of somebody from the Lord's Supper. 
when a church has to say to somebody, you may not eat and drink because of the way your sin has taken root, that you are not repentant for, you're, you're not even acknowledging it, you can't see it. You may not now eat and drink bread and wine that shows us the meaning of Christ's death. Somebody has pointed out, what, what, what might God be saying to us when he has removed from the church the very sign and symbol of Christ's life-giving sacrificial death for us? Is it possible we are in days of global, national, God-ordained church discipline? It's just worth pondering, isn't it? Even if you don't want to go that far, if we don't want to think that, we are clearly in days of famine. We are not together. Our arms are not embracing each other week by week. Our hands are not shaking. We are not passing bread and wine from hand to hand. Now, I think God is saying to us in these days of famine, will we treat church family being together like a famine in the future? Picking and choosing, coming and going as it suits us. Or will we treat being together as a church family like a feast? The joy and wonder of being together Sunday by Sunday. I've said it so many times, haven't I, over the uh, the past years. As we prepare to move into our building, one of the greatest joys to me in that building will be eating and drinking together often. Being a family, sharing all of life. Sunday is a day for justice. Sunday is a day for sharing, for providing, for sacrificing, for giving. Sunday is a day when we come back to God and say we confess our Father that we do not live up to the family name. How glad we are that you have not put us out of the family, but instead you have called us, called us home, given us the best food to eat, dressed us in the best robes, forgiven our sins. You have washed us. Made us new in Jesus, your son. Here I am again, seeking you, longing to know you, to be yours and to have you. Here I am, Lord, to love you with all my heart and all my soul and all my mind and all my strength. And here I am to love my neighbour as myself. Oh, friends, in these days of famine, as we prepare to feast again one day, May God call us back to him deeply, truly from our hearts. May our religion be overflowing love for Christ and for our neighbours. And may God find us like that all our days. Amen.